You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, it's, it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. Your guide on the side. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Interesting, uh, interesting research about what Americans fear most. And when you think about it, it's the fears, they're... They're very much about what you can control or can't control, right? So if I can't control something, I might be more inclined to be afraid, to want to fix it. Um, And it's just interesting. Also, the paranormal stuff he was getting into, it was also very, very fascinating, I think, because there's 40% of Americans believe that uh, places can be haunted by spirits, Okay, And more than a fourth, according to the Chapman survey, uh, believe that the living and the dead can communicate with each other. 20% of Americans believe that both aliens visited Earth in the ancient past and that dreams can foretell the future. Isn't that interesting? One of the surveys, uh, the survey also shed light on certain characteristics of people who believe in the paranormal. And Ed went over this a little bit. He said, people with the highest levels of paranormal beliefs have the following traits. Low levels of church attendance, non-white, Catholic, no college degree, female, unmarried, living in the Northeast. Isn't that interesting? They, like, they can target paranormal beliefs that, that directly. But it's uh, it's fascinating. In fact, um, I recently just found uh, a, a really interesting um, article that was talking about a dead woman. So a young woman died in an accident in China. And there's a, there's a belief, you know, you got to get married. So listen to what happened. Uh, three people were detained for attempting to sell the corpse of a young woman to be used in a ghost bride ritual. And what they were doing is the official uh, uh, Xinhua News Agency reported that the main suspect, a man aged 72, said he had heard about the death of a young woman in a nearby village in Shanxi province and thought of selling the corpse to relatives of a single dead man. So... A single dead man should be married to a single dead woman. And the the price was 25,000 yuan. Is that how you say that? $4,000. Anyway, they, uh, they were, I guess, uh, the main suspect and two accomplices pretended to be relatives of the woman and negotiated a sell price of $4,000 with the buyer. And while they were raiding a village tomb for the body last weekend, their plot was scuttled by villagers who caught them in the act and alerted police. The reason behind the ritual is to ward off bad luck, especially with dying while single. And the practice reportedly extends back centuries. It persists in more rural areas, but it still isn't something, uh, you know, it's, it's still a belief system. So one of the reasons your fears may matter and what uh, we were just learning from Ed Day is the fact that you might want to start taking some of your traditions, some of your values or your beliefs and just evaluating them, you know, basing them on something more modern doesn't make it more accurate, but um, 
it's try try to understand the theory behind it. Try to dig a little deeper into what's going on instead of just raiding a tomb. Interesting stuff, huh? That's why fears matter. It also those fears, by the way, make it so we see what we want to see, we hear what we want to hear. Many of the arguments that I try to help couples resolve are generally coming out of fear. And uh, if if you want to conquer the conversation, you got to conquer the fear a bit. So also we could take in a little bit more data, right? Usually when our, we're talking to our partner, every conversation is not life or death. It doesn't need to be the thing that terrifies you. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, a little coach's corner for you here. Isn't it interesting that the the strengths become the weaknesses? So over evolution of the ma- of the body we we needed certain traits to survive and the body learned and you know if you were able to survive long enough to procreate and have children those genes could be handed down and now look at the curveball we've got because we were able to run and sweat and you know rehydrate our body started craving salts and water and fluids now all of a sudden that has turned into, hey, let's go get some fries and a Diet Coke. <laughs> Not good. Or fries and a Coke. And now all of a sudden your brain loves the sugar because it wants as much sugar on board as it can get. Your brain loves the salt. And now we have to deal with it. It used to save our lives and now we don't need to chase an animal and run and sweat and perspire for hours. So um, how do we handle it now? Do you know how many times I've had people say, well, I mean, I know I've got this physical problem. I mean, I know, I know. I've been anxious and depressed my entire life. I know it. But I don't want to get medicine. I don't want it. But what you're battling isn't just a weakness. You're battling evolutionary genes that are in you that have made you be a really uh, maybe tense anxious person so you wouldn't get, you know, snuck up on by a wild animal or a predator. You have that worry. That's in you. That's not going away. And so as the good doctor told us, you can either regulate it away, you know, by having more regulation on what we can do, what we can't do, more regulation on our mental health industries, or we could also just, I guess, use behavior change which I have a lot of people want to get over anxiety, but they don't know how and they don't get therapy and they don't read books about it. Or eventually you're going to need to let science in. Somehow we need to break down a little bit, I think, of the belief that science is against us instead of science maybe there to be the valuable bridge to to bridge our, our past and our future. I mean, and a lot of the people are God-fearing people that, you know, they don't, they don't think they need medicine and drugs to fix something. But God also gave you science, right? He also gave you, you know, insight, the ability to learn and to read and to think. He gave you choice and agency. So if we're going to, you know, invoke God into the argument about how we handle our evolution and our realities, then let's involve him in everything. There are scientists that are deeply prompted and moved by a God. So let's make choices and let's not do it at the expense of our health.
You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. You know, one of the biggest victims of this new age of information and uh, technology is going to be the relationship, right? And as a relationship coach, uh, I do believe it's something we need to pay close attention to. So it will be today's topic of the Coach's Corner. How do we how do we close the closeness gap? Many people are struggling um, feeling close to another person. They, they, they feel lonely personally and, uh, you know, interpersonally, they feel like they just aren't close to their partner, to their kids. Um, it's hard when everyone's sitting looking at their phones and no one's connecting and talking. You might start to feel like you don't matter, that you are irrelevant. And um, there's it is a plague, quite honestly, and, and yet it's something that we, we can fix. But like our good guest Andrew Merle was just saying, you might need to make some choices, like the choice to put the phone away. And that's that's easier said, and I say it, and every time I say it, I notice that I, I still have a hard time putting my phone away because the phone makes it so I don't need to be vulnerable. I don't need to talk to anybody. I'm tired. Just once I pull it out, everyone kind of leaves me alone. But some of that then fosters this sense of loneliness. And uh, one of the things, there's a great book out there that I would highly recommend um, uh, called Stop Being Lonely. And it's um, uh, the Kira, Kira somebody, let me find, look up her name, but it's in the book, um, one of the ideas behind the concept of stop being lonely is what we really need to do is start to feel more um, more of an ability to get to understand the people around us. We really have to kind of step in and get uh, to understand who we are married to, who we are living with. Uh, Kira Asatryan is the author of the book, Stop Being Lonely, Three Simple Steps to Developing Close Relationships and Deep, or Close Friendships and Deep Relationships. But one of the interesting things she teaches is uh, don't just assume you understand the person you're with. And I did this yesterday with a, with a couple where I had them identify on a list of positive traits and negative traits um, what are their top, you know, eight you know, positive ways that they see themselves and what are some of the negative ways they see themselves that, that they in – their, in their head, in their heart of hearts, they really – they feel this way. Uh, they, they, and, and basically this couple had been arguing about a situation and um, we did this activity and then I had them turn to each other and talk about what they found. One person's uh, – one of his top traits was loyalty. Another person's top trait, the female's top trait was – um, just just uh, com- compassion and, um, you know, and, and just a sense of compassion for others. And what ends up happening is uh, the, the male's negative trait was stubbornness and the female's negative trait was confusion. So what ends up happening in their relationship is a lot of times the, the wife is compassionately serving her children while the husband is lonely and loyal and wondering why she isn't more loyal to him. And then they fight. And what was amazing is, is I had them start identifying how they both see themselves and how their partner sees themselves. It changes the entire discussion. He's not being stubborn because he hates her. He's being stubborn because that's just his weakness. And she doesn't 
get confused about not loving him or loving the kids. I mean, that confusion is not coming because she doesn't love him. It's coming because she's so compassionate. She's going to always take care of the one that's in the need. Well, then he has to create a need for her to be able to be compassionate. The power of if you want to be um, more connected to others is you've got to understand where they're coming from, from their frame of reference. If they're trying to do something and they want loyalty, you need to understand that. If they want more compassion, you need to understand that. Understanding somebody is the antidote to creating a closer relationship. So a little challenge for you. Put down the phones. Go try to understand each other. Make sense? We'll take a break. We'll be back for more of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, how do you deal with that impossible person? Believe me, if I knew, I would have a lot better show by now, based on the last segment we just did. Uh, The one who always seems to be out to get you, you know, when you're at an impasse with your boss, your spouse, your neighbors, how do you reach a solution that's best for both of you? How do you negotiate and uh, and make it through those difficult topics, especially when... um, when the other person might be making you more emotional and your emotions tend to take over, how do you how do you keep your head about you and negotiate through some of the non-negotiables? Well, who better to teach us about how to do that than Dan Shapiro, who wrote the book, Negotiating the Non-Negotiable, How to Resolve Your Most Emotionally Charged Conflicts. And he's here today to talk about tribal thinking. And um, I'm dying to figure out what he means by that. But Dan Shapiro, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Matt, it's great to be with you. Thank you so much. And you are the founder and director of the Harvard International Negotiation Program. That is correct. Now, is that PON, is that Project on Negotiation? So that is affiliated with the Program on Negotiation. We are also connected with the psychology department at Harvard Medical School. And uh, so really looking at how you deal with the emotional, the identity-based, the human side of conflict. Because really, isn't that it? I mean, it seems like if we could just remove all emotion and bring logic into the room, we could probably get through this stuff. We'd be a sad species of human beings. <laughs> we totally would. We lost our humanity. Um, I, I, think, I think our humanity is our strength and our weakness. Yeah, you know? no, exactly, huh? The double-edged yeah. sword. Talk to us about what you mean by um, tribal, uh, the tribal thinking. Sure. So over the course of the past 20 or so years, been looking at what really essentially causes people to get into conflicts, not the good ones, but the troubling ones, you know, where you tear the relationships apart. And there's this fundamental mindset that we found tends to drive almost every one of these toxic conflicts, and I call it the tribes effect. It's a divisive mindset. It's the moment that, Matt, you and I might be best friends, but all of a sudden I say something that threatens your identity or vice versa. Now it becomes divisive. You versus me, us versus them. This is a mindset. And as a mindset, it sticks. It can stick for days, weeks, generations. Uh, But that's the challenge of conflict. Like, I mean, yeah, you could almost see back in the day, 
two tribes almost living side by side, very potentially simpatico and healthy and strong. They all have the same needs, but they're different tribes. And as soon as – I mean, they might even be friends until they realize they're different tribes. And then that creates this, I guess, mindset. And the mind, I mean, the mindset, I guess, is to protect people. Is that – our tribal need is, is a need to protect our, our core group? Exactly. I mean, so tribes aren't bad things. You know, we yeah. all – the way I use the word tribe, we all belong to dozens right. of different tribes. You know, my family is a tribe. The university is a tribe. The corporation – you have marketing and research, Google, Shell, ISIS. You have the good tribes, the bad tribes. And yeah, exactly. Why are tribes useful? Because we're trying to protect our own family, our own group. And yet at the same time as we are working to protect them, we often become self-sabotaging. We put up this, you know, turtle shell in front of us, and it, it doesn't necessarily make for cooperative interaction. And then that... I guess you're saying is what charges the conflict, the emotion, the the chemical side. What we found is that there are these forces, these five emotional forces that tend to lure us toward that tribal thinking. And and the book really talks about these five, I call them the five lures of the tribal mind, five emotional forces that pull us toward us-them thinking, even when it's self-sabotaging and it breaks down the family or the organization. Hmm. Give us some of those. What what are these forces? Sure. So one example, I mean, think about a recent conflict that you've gotten into, an emotionally charged conflict. Yeah. First of these forces is what I call vertigo. So vertigo is when you get so emotionally consumed in a conflict situation that you can think of nothing but that, you know, that evil other person who per- perpetrated the conflict. Hmm. You, maybe the conflict's at work, you struggle with a colleague. You go home at the end of the day, and yes, you are there at home in body, but not in mind. You know, you're still reeling about what happened at work. And just as true, it can happen at home. You get into a fight with a spouse, a teenager. You go to work, and yes, you are there in body at work, but your mind, your heart, it's still at home. You are in that spinning emotional tornado that I call vertigo. Wow. And and the moment you get into that, the conflict becomes divisive. It's me versus you. You don't have to get into it, though. You know, so in the book, I talk about how you can avoid getting into that world of vertigo that we all, of course, do get into. But how do you break out of it? Yeah. This is, I mean, what's so great about it is conflict is as old as anything, right? I mean, we've, as long as we've been around, we've had the tribes, we've belonged to our groups, and we've then had to combat, I guess. So we're really, I guess, trying to just overcome our nature. I, I think that's right. I think we're trying to recognize your nature yeah. and then make rational decisions about our emotional selves. <clears throat> Which way do you want to go? You know, um, I think that's right. So I think our instincts are no different than they were a couple thousand years ago. Uh, and yet, as we develop more and more ideas, we can start to have better reins over our instincts. Yeah, this is interesting. What's another emotional force that kind of pulls us down? Sure. So, so I, I know you, you have a, a strong background in conflict resolution. Yeah. My sense is that people often go to workshops, you know, with all due respect, workshops on negotiation, communication skills. And they come back to work or home. I am a transformed person. How I took a class. Exactly. And for about two weeks, they are transformed. 
And then three weeks later, they go back to their same old patterns. Right. The second of these lures is what I call, I should say, what Freud originally called the repetition compulsion. What I mean by that, it is that we tend to repeat the same dysfunctional patterns of behavior again and again and again and again, even when they are not serving our better good. Yeah. So, you know, my, my wife and I, you know, she's, a, she's trained as a social worker. I do work, obviously, in conflict resolution. And, you know, and at points we'll get into a conflict and you can start to feel it going in the wrong <laughs> direction. You know, like, I shouldn't be saying what I feel like I want to say. Right. I'm not, I might be thinking that this yeah. is the repetition compulsion. That's it. And, and that was Freud. Freud talked about that, huh? And Freud was the originator of this concept. He, he, what he noted, he initially thought, boy, we all want to move toward positivity. You know, we want to enjoy the pleasure. We want to move away from pain. And then he started doing work with women involved in domestic abuse situations and others. And he said, well, wait a minute. Why do they hop out of one domestic abuse situation and go into another? That doesn't seem like that's pleasure. Mm. But there's a compulsion. And, and, it, and my sense is that it, it becomes a part of our identity. You know, whether we are, have good behavior in a conflict or bad, the way we act is the way we think, you know, it's, it's part of who I am. Don't tell me to act different in this conflict situation. Right. And it's almost That's like the, it, it makes sense, right? Even if it's – even if we know it's not going to work and even if we know um, it's even against our value system to do it, even those two things aren't strong enough to keep us from just getting back in the compulsion. I have a, exact, I have a wonderful friend, brilliant, brilliant lawyer, uh, lives in Pennsylvania, was involved in a 25-year emotionally abusive relationship, finally broke out about a month and a half ago, to, went to D.C., and what do you think she does every day? She's with my friends in D.C., obsessing, should I go back, should I not, should I go <sighs> back? She calls uh, you know, her, her um, life partner uh, every single day. This is the repetition compulsion. On a rational level, she absolutely knew I shouldn't go back. This is unhealthy. And yet I regret to say about two weeks ago now, oh. she went back. You know, but that's not to say it's hopeless. So right. in the book, when I talk about how can you better understand your own patterns, once you understand them, you absolutely have the power to, to make a choice, to make a different choice, you know, to break out of that repetition compulsion. I mean, I guess even just starting to recognize the compulsion is a leg oh, up. No, and that's huge. You're absolutely right. That is the biggest part. You know, to recognize this is the pattern that I am in right now, uh, and, and to even name it. You know, so in the book I talk about a couple, which I can relate to this couple. That's why I wrote this example. The husband traveled a lot. The wife was at home with the kids. And every time the husband came home, it was a mess in their house. Because the wife, she'd been in control of the house. Now the husband wants to go, you know, manage the whole household. And they got into the same pattern of conflict every time when the husband returned. They gave a name to their conflict. They called it the trip fit, like a fit, you know, like a trip fit. Yeah. And, and, and they said that, that was a marvelous help because when they got back home, they could feel that desire to get back into that same old pattern, that negative pattern. But one of them would just say to the other, wait a minute, we're about to get back into that trip fit. You know, do we really want to argue for the next three hours on this Saturday, or should we go out and have some fun with the kids? That's great. Yeah. It gives them a choice. And, and, and then 
is it possible, I guess, to, you know, write an overriding, you know, system process to then, I mean, so that they can do this habitually, just like the compulsion is? Yeah. You can't, I mean, neuroscience would say that you can't overwrite it. You know, we develop these patterns, they get synaptically stuck in our brains, mm-hmm. you know. I, the, the, the best bet is to build a new pattern. Yeah. So instead of burning down the current house, you can't do that. Just build a new house. Get some new patterns. So, you know, as the couple initially came together, the problem was that, you know, they'd each feel resentful of the other abandoned in a way. And so they'd fight. And they wouldn't talk. They wouldn't express their feelings. The new way they did it, you know, to avoid that trip fit, was to start off by simply appreciating each other's perspective. It literally helped me understand what it was like this past week while I'm gone. Here's what it was like for me, you know, working day and night while I was away from you. And they start to connect in a very different way. And, and, and again, that, that becomes... Um... It becomes healthier. It becomes more aligned to their values, and and it is a rerouting of their mind. And I guess if you do it over time, it just becomes a more powerful draw, more or more slippery or slide that it's easier for you no, to it, take. Exactly. I see it sort cool. of like a road. You know, every day I drive home from um, Harvard Square, the same path to my home, and you know, there's there, there's a very imprinted pattern in my brain. You know, one day I might decide, you know, I'm going to break out. I'm going to take a back road. And it's going to feel a little bit weird and cool and exciting and different, and I'm really going to have to focus on day one. But if I take that back road for the, back road for the next two, two weeks, suddenly that feels like my pattern. Done. I'm comfortable with it. Yeah. And that's what we want to do with conflict as well, with these more emotional problems or challenges. Mm. Stick with us, Dan. We're speaking with Dr. Daniel Shapiro, who's the founder and director of Harvard's International Negotiation Program. He also has he's got a wonderful website um, to go check out, uh, danshapiroglobal.com. We're talking about his book, Negotiating the Non-Negotiable, How to Resolve Your Most Emotionally Charged Conflicts. Interesting stuff, folks, to help you love a lot stronger and, and just feel better in your life. Stick with us. We'll come back, continue the discussion. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. We do what we can here to give you the information you need, uh, some real-life solutions to your everyday problems. And how about just negotiating those emotionally charged conflicts? Well, who better to teach us than Dr. Dan Shapiro, um, who is the founder and director of Harvard's International Negotiation Program and author of the book, Negotiating the Non-Negotiable, How to Resolve Your Most Emotionally Charged Conflicts. He's been uh, working with us and talking to us today about um, his book and also five emotional forces uh, or lures, as he calls them, that kind of, you know, that, that make conflict harder. One of them is just the emotional vertigo you get when you're chasing you're chasing the snake. There's a great quote that says it's not the snake that bites you. It's chasing the snake that drives the venom to the heart. 
And uh, sometimes it's your fighting and your need to just you keep thinking about it. You're obsessing about it. He called that vertigo and also repetition compulsion where we just have this compulsive need to keep doing something even if it doesn't work and it's against our better judgment or health. We just keep doing it, especially, Dan. Uh, first of all, Dan, welcome back to the show. Thank you. <laughs> it, it seems like it's it's even more complicated when it's a dyad, right, when it's two people because I might be able to – maybe manage some of my thinking by myself. But then if my spouse keeps doing repetition compulsion and I'm doing it, it's a time bomb. I mean, it's just inevitable if we don't lead it. I, yeah, I, I, it, I, I am convinced that it takes only one to change. Yeah. Uh, in, in almost any situation, people seem to have a stalemate, each waiting for the other to change or to, to, to acknowledge I'm right, you're wrong. Um, it only takes one to make, you know, to make the change in the relationship. In a couple's relationship, as, as you were raising, if only one person breaks out of the confrontational mode and starts to appreciate the other's perspective, that other side then goes, oh, and they let down their, their defenses, mm-hmm. the shield starts to go down. They're more open, ultimately, to listening to you as well. And so you feel better, right, too, because you're doing what you can. Exactly. And you, you said values earlier. You're living up to your own values as well, I'd assume. You know, we want yeah. good, positive values. You're living up to those values. It's hard to do in a conflict, but it does only take one to move things in a different direction. No, I totally agree. And, and I've seen many a miracle where the one – and they took it. I mean, they, they just chose to be healthier even though their partner didn't change initially. But eventually – kind of goodness prevailed, or sometimes goodness just strengthens the one to leave, like that friend of yeah. yours you were talking about, and, and stay out, mm-hmm. you know, cause, because they, right. they're emboldened by living their values. I mean, in the book, one of the things I talk about is the space between people. So if you imagine a couple, for example, as two stick figures, each, each member of that couple, each stick figure has their own identity. You know, I am this, I am that, these are my beliefs, my values. And yet there's this space between them, which might seem fictitious and not real. I think it's very real. It's yeah. the emotional reality that you create through your interaction with somebody else. We know it, you know, in, in the regular sense, when people, two people aren't getting along, we'll often say, boy, oh, boy, there is something between them. Mm-hmm. Or, or the opposite, in the workplace, if you see two people who've caught each other's fancy, you whisper to your colleague, I think there's something between them. Yeah, you know? yeah. But, but but what this means ultimately is that we can control each person in the relationship can control the emotions that are there in the relationship by our own individual behavior. So it really does mean there is power to one to affecting and improving your conflicts. And true, too, because emotions contagious to a degree, isn't it? So, I mean, if somebody is at peace, you'll probably be more at peace. If somebody's intense and ready to go off, you're probably going to heighten your emotion. No, exactly. That's, that's the, the most dangerous problem of conflict and its most wonderful blessing. Uh-huh. If the negative emotions, it turns into wildfire. If you get the positive emotions, you get this beautiful synergy. How do we, how do we turn off? And I guess, I mean, something is going to, and it might just be evolutionary, you know, genes or whatever that have, have made us prepare for the fight. Um, 
how do we turn those off or not let them run the show? Well, I, I, I think, you know, one of the most useful things, in, like if, if you are involved in a deeply challenging conflict situation, one of the, in the book I've, I've, I've coined something I call your mythos of identity. The basic idea here is what is the core narrative defining your relationship with the other side? And, and this might sound complicated and academic, but the basic idea, what can you do? What's a metaphor that you can use to describe the nature of your relationship with the other side? And, and if you can really find a metaphor that defines, the, you know, that you feel identifies your relationship, or, you know, depicts it, mm-hmm. it's incredibly helpful. Um, just to give you an example, I was recently working with Israelis and Palestinians uh, at, at the Harvard Kennedy School. So they was, these were mid-career uh, executives, in Israeli, Palestinians, internationals. And I asked them to do this in small groups, mixed groups. I said, find some metaphor that you believe describes the nature of the relationship between the Palestinians and the Israelis. And at first they looked at me and they said, you have to do what? And I said, just try it. It's fine. And they got so into this that they, in fact, wrote a Huffington Post article about it beautiful metaphors. One metaphor uh, was of Siamese twins and depicting the Israelis and Palestinians as Siamese twins. And then it raised all the questions. Is there one heart or are there two? One brain or two? If you slice the Siamese twin in half to create two bodies, are they both going to live or is only one going to live? And they got so deep into understanding the nature of the relationship between them I, I mean, 20 years of the rhetoric and the, the you know, the typical political discourse right. would not have gotten them where they got in those 20 minutes moving to a metaphor. Yeah. And, and I think of the family. You know, if, if, if somebody's in a tough conflict with a spouse, a teenager, a worker, what's a metaphor that you think might describe your relationship? And then how can you make it more empowering? You know, so if you see yourself as little David and compared to Goliath, well, you can eat, you know, an extra bowl of Cheerios and David gets a lot bigger. <laughs> Buff up, or, yeah. you know, whatever it is. But you can do crazy things, and then what does it mean to eat those Cheerios? You know, how, how, how can you actually strengthen yourself in your relationship with that intimidating other person? That's great. And, and even if it starts with a negative kind of or an oppressive uh, metaphor like, well, I feel like a slave to a slave owner, you, yes. then you would ask, okay, so how do we empower that metaphor. That's right. What's making you feel like a slave? Yeah. Uh, is there somebody forcing you to stay there and do what you're doing? Why? What's the for- Who's forcing you? That other person? What power does that person have over you? Hmm. Maybe they don't have the power that you think. Yeah. I mean, in a sense, that's the, my friend I was talking about earlier. She felt like a slave to the slave owner, her emotionally abusive partner, and she suddenly realized, well, wait a minute. Maybe I'm not the slave. Yeah. Maybe this is the wrong metaphor. Maybe I am my own person here, a free person in a free country, and let me, you know, let me proudly walk out of this relationship, which she did for a while. And that, that helps you, I guess, look through a different lens at the same situation. Absolutely. That's well, brilliant. In, in a sense, what you're doing is you're getting to the emotional heart of the conflict without necessarily going through 30 years of psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. I mean, literally, it, it's, it's streamlining it. And more than that, you know, I often recommend couples, to the extent that they feel comfortable doing so, 
sit down together and think through how would we define, what's a metaphor that we think defines the way we see our relationship with one another in the tough time? And, and very revealing. Yeah. And then you can start to think through, well, maybe let's think about a different metaphor here, one that's more empowering for both of us in, in this situation. Love that. It's, um, it also seems to put you in a different brain, right? Not your fight-or-flight brain, more the prefrontal cortex, the creative yeah. reasoning brain. Exactly. So what I found is one of the powerful elements of this concept, of this tool, is that you can then really work through emotional, emotionally charged issues without getting into that emotionally charged experience. Uh-huh. So, so it's not like you're avoiding the strong emotions. They're there. Accept them. Yeah. But how do we, t- but it's, it's very different for me to say, you know, in, in a conflict, I feel angry and upset and resentful at you and I hate you and uh-huh. you drive me crazy versus, you know what? I feel like David, I feel like you're Goliath in the situation and I don't like the way this is working out. Yeah. You, you can talk about that in a much safer way than, you know, th- than the vulnerability of talking directly about the emotion. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's almost like it's outside of you. It's a new, it's a new um, narrative that's not, it's not my heart telling you, I don't know how you say it. It's like a third entity that we're using. You know, you're externalizing your emotional experience yeah. and talking about it. It's exactly, so, I mean, just quickly as an example. When my third son was born, my second son started to act out, you know, punching his older brother, the then eight-year-old, his eight-year-old older brother, and so on. And I got, you know, I sat down with middle, the middle son, Zachary, one day, and I said, look, you know, what's going on? And, you know, it, it, how would you describe what comes over you when you get so frustrated? He said, you know what, it's sort of like the dark side or the dark, uh-huh. world, whichever it was from Star Wars. Ah, I said, well, what's going to happen the next time you feel that coming on? He said, oh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go for it. Okay. He runs outside. What happens about 10 minutes later? He's in the backyard. He gets into a fight with his older brother. Darth Vader's I'm back. Exactly what happened. The dark side, it got me. Later that day, I'm sitting inside working. My son Zachary comes bursting in. Daddy, Daddy, guess what? What? I had the dark side come on, and I didn't let it get me. Ah, oh, that's cool. The new narrative. That's so great. Well, now you have this hook because you now. You've, you've created something together that you can help coach each other through. Exactly. Exactly. And, and it's easy enough that the seven-year-old can do it. it it's sophisticated enough that we've, we, myself, and, and um, colleagues in um, other parts of the world have done this in international conflicts as well. Uh, Estonia, Russia, there was tension building there. Mm. Talked, some of my colleagues built a metaphor there on help them better understand the nature of the conflict and how to break out. Um, That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dan, it, it's it's great stuff, and um, really, I know a lot about Pawn and what you guys do there. Incredible, I mean, really, and people may not know how much you are changing the world in some of the, in some of the hottest, you know, negotiations on Earth. Really, quite literally. So, we appreciate having your time. We'd love to have you back in the future as well. Everybody, again, Dan, thanks so much. Matt, thank you so much. It's wonderful to talk with you. You too. And go to Dan, uh, danshapiroglobal.com. Wonderful resource, folks. And the book, the book, Negotiating the Non-Negotiable, How to Resolve Your Most Emotionally Charged Conflicts, maybe starting with a metaphor, maybe checking your tribe, you know, maybe looking at some of those impulses that drive you to automatically react. Great learnings from uh, Dan Shapiro. We'll take a break. 
Come right back. Wrap up the second hour of the Matt Townsend Show. This is uh, the goal, remember, to give you the tools to be able to live longer and love stronger. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. Now, remember, this show is all about giving you the tips and the tools to live healthier, right? Happier lives. That includes more sanitary lives as well. We figured there is one place that all of our listeners can relate to, one place we all spend some time every day, and that is the bathroom. So we sent our producer, Leanna Tan, to find some advice on how you can improve your your bathroom procedures to make sure you're um, having a healthier, germ-free life. Here's Leanna Tan. Splish, splash, I was taking a bath. Long about a Saturday night. Welcome to another beautiful, busy day. I know you all have a lot on your plate, so you don't always get the chance to go through the treasures of the internet, but it's okay. I've got you covered. So I was just reading this article from the Huffington Post, 11 mistakes you're making in the bathroom and how to fix them. And I gotta say, I was surprised at how many of these I'm actually guilty of, and I think you are too. I know you don't have a lot of time though, so I chose the five most pressing matters to share with you, and hopefully I'll save you from some incurable disease. So here we go. Folly number one, going overboard with shampoo. Whoops. Okay, this is what I've been trying to convince my roommates of forever. Trust me, it's been very hard to convince my roommates that washing my hair once a week is sufficient and that it's actually a secret beauty tip. But here's proof. Dermatologist Dr. Zoe Dralis told the Los Angeles Times, our scalp produces natural oils that are the ultimate hair conditioner. Too much shampoo strips these vital oils Proof. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Dralis. Number two, using toxic chemicals to clean. (coughs) The Environmental Working Group says that many of our cleaning products have ingredients known to cause cancer, blindness, and more. What? Okay, scary. So next time you walk out of the shower and you think that you can't see the mirror because it's foggy, you might want to consider visiting your ophthalmologist. Uh Uh-oh. Huffington Post says, instead, make your own green cleaner using fruit. A grapefruit cut in half with salt is an effective tub scrubber, and a halved lemon will make the water stains on your faucets a distant memory. Well, I want my faucet stains a distant memory. And it's great because, as a bonus, you have a snack right there if you get hungry shaving. Yummy! Number three, walking on your bathroom floor barefoot. So you think that the toilet might be the most unsanitary place, but a study for ABC News said the bathroom floor has about 2 million bacteria per square inch. That's gross. It seems so innocent to just walk on your floor barefoot. I feel like the bathroom is a pretty safe place, but I guess not. Guess it's time to throw on the galoshes. (laughs) Number four, reusing your bath towel too many times. I have to admit... I am a culprit of this. I have to pay for my laundry. I have to, you know, put the quarters in, walk down the stairs, sort the laundry. It's just uh, so much effort. But this article says, bacteria thrive in damp, tightly woven, wet towels. The bacteria ends up back on you when you reuse the towels. And it also says that if you have any open wounds, you could be infecting yourself with whatever's in your towel. And now that I think of it, I have a lot of stuff in my towel I probably don't want in my wounds. I'm pretty sure my towel has plenty of roommate face germs on it. I think that we should just get rid of towels altogether and just use one of those Dyson hand dryers, but full body sized. I mean, no need for blow drying your hair or 
even a facelift. It's a two-in-one feature. And for number five, keeping your toothbrush too close to your toilet. I never thought that was a thing, but I guess it is within six feet to be exact. An article from the Harvard University Gazette says, Every time you flush, aerosolized particles from the toilet float as far as six feet away. Now that is just revolting. You could be brushing your teeth with toilet water and whatever else is in your toilet. I'm pretty sure I just saved your life. You're welcome. Pretty much your next shower routine should look like you walking into the bathroom with a week's worth of greasy hair, galoshes, and an extendable arm to reach your toothbrush. But don't worry, you'll have a citrusy snack waiting there for you and you can finish off with a facelift. Well, there you have it. Everything you need to know about the bathroom. Now you're five facts wiser in bathroom conduct. I hope you have a sanitary day and please don't forget to move your toothbrush. You'll thank me for it one day. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? Your guide on the side. And a lot of us end up spending our entire life searching for what we expect instead of what has actually been given to us. Dr. Matt Townsend. Did you know that there was so much research on the spiritual benefits um, and the health benefits of spirituality? So I see it all the time with my clients. They come in and... Uh, I teach a, I teach a basic concept of body, mind, spirit, that everything we do, we are going to either have to orient from our body, our mind, or the way we think, or our spirit. Our spirit, I teach, basically knows peace. The example I always give, um, like adults, about the spirit is when you're holding your baby, you're in the middle of the night, you're not, you know, thinking he's going to be president or anything. You're just calm. You're rocking your baby to sleep. And you just feel love and peace and just – you just feel joy, right? To me, that's the power of the spirit. Spirit uh, is – and again, and she described it so beautifully, Dr. Lisa Miller did. Spirit is is the essential form of who we all are. And every major religion is basically going to understand that there's some spiritual part of us. That spirit's always operating. I believe it's inside of each of us. Then we all have minds and we have bodies. The mind, so the spirit brings the peace. The mind wants to be popular. The mind wants to be pretty. The mind is the identity we've all set up for ourselves. So we come to this earth and when you sit there and you look at that cute baby and that baby's, you know, two months old or five months old or 10 months old and you're like, oh, you're so beautiful. Look at your eyes. You're so smart. You're the smartest baby. Oh, you throw that ball so hard. All of those different things start to create an identity for this child. And eventually that child is going to think that it is all of these things, blue eyed, blonde hair, whatever, throws a great curveball. But the problem is that's not who you are spiritually, right? So there's a little bit of a discord between who you are spiritually and who your mind thinks you are. You might even just think you're a a guy or a gal, or you might think you're smart or you're not. Oh, yeah, I'm not very smart. I didn't do very well on the ACT. Failed the ACT. So all of a sudden, because you failed the ACT, your mind thinks that's who you are. Now, do you think your spirit cares about your ACT? Your spirit knows that you're this being that's been living and has existed and you're powerful beyond measure. Yeah, but I'm fat. That's my mind telling me I'm fat. Or I can orient from my body. And my body basically wants pleasure or pain. 
or procreate. That's pretty much what it brings, or the party. What's for dinner? So sometimes we come to life and, and we let our bodies, our desires, d- direct us. Sometimes if I have fear, my body might feel fear because I've got to go talk to my boss about whatever. So my body creates chemistry. My mind makes up a story. Yeah, he's not going to like me because of this and this and this, which creates complexity. But at any point, we can get back to our spirit. So however you get to spirit, some meditate, some read scriptures, some will sing a hymn, some will just think of their God. Imagine your God just holding you as you're, you know, walking in with you to go talk to your boss. If you have to go in with your God, what on earth is your boss going to do that will matter? You can still feel peace, right? So body, mind, spirit. And I'm telling you, I teach this all the time to people and they come in and once they can start to recognize if they're feeling, you know, body, mind or spirit, Then we can get back to the spiritual core, I call it. We've got to get back to that spiritual sense of who we all are. And when we do, we feel peace instantly. Now, it doesn't change everything, right? It just changes how you see everything. If you just lost your spouse to cancer, you're going to probably have to operate at all three of those levels. Your body will miss that person. It will ache to be next to that person. It will create major pain chemistry. Your mind will start creating major fears and convolutions like, oh, am I going to be able to make it? I don't know if I have enough money. I don't even know where the insurance is. What if I can't find somebody else? What if I? What if nobody wants to be around me? Our fears start to come up. Fears don't exist in your spirit. They don't even exist in your body. Your body's going to respond to a stimulus. It's not just going to automatically feel the fear. Something's got to kick in, right? That might be the mind. So the mind starts to kick in and create stories for you. So a lot of times our grieving is us trying to manage our mind. A lot of times our fear, the most difficult things on this earth tend to be, I believe, conjured by the mind. So body, mind, spirit, we're doing it all the time. Coaching 101, the number one secret, let me tell you. You don't need to get in spirit. You already are in spirit. You just need to notice where you are. And the minute you notice if you're in body, mind, or spirit... You're already moving to spirit because the only thing that notices its mind is the spirit, right? The mind doesn't notice itself. That's, it thinks that that's who you are. But when you start looking at yourself like, are you kidding me? I'm making such a big deal over something that's so stupid. The minute you're starting to think that way, you're already moving into your, your spirit. Again, we are spiritual beings having a human experience. We're not just human beings having a spiritual experience. It's, it's the most powerful tool I've ever seen. I have a son that's in Mexico serving a, a mission for the LDS Church in northern Mexico, and we, had, we got to talk to him on Mother's Day. And he just sat there and spoke spiritually to my other son that's about to go on a mission. And it was the most amazing spirit-to-spirit conversation you've ever seen. And I could see my son's mind spinning because, oh, he's so scared to go out and doesn't know what he wants to do. And My other son just basically shared his testimony, his belief, and the Spirit talked to Spirit. It was the most incredible thing. Folks, everybody out there, the people in the car in front of you, they're all spiritual beings. Whatever your religion, we're all just spiritual beings trying to make it through this crazy thing we call life. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Honestly, um, a drought in the West. Do you remember the Dust Bowl 
you know, in the Midwest, um, the Depression. Do you remember Hurricane Katrina? I mean, a problem in any part of the country is a problem for everybody in the country. Your, you know, economic problems in California are going to impact everybody. So when we think about any of these challenges, I I would just, as part of the Coach's Corner, challenge all of us to remember, and, and Tony Arnold, our earlier guest, brought up a great word or two, or actually three, uh, hope. And he, he taught us that hope is a byproduct of having agency, knowing that you have choices to make, that you are an agent that will act. And I believe every human being on this earth is here to act. You're not just here to be acted upon. You're here to act. You're not even just here to let you know nature act just upon you. You can also proactively choose how you're going to manage nature to the degree that you can manage nature, right? Um, You also have, so you have agency. You also have to keep your choices and your options open. I would call that freedom. He calls it pathways. But the more freedom you have, we can have all the rights in the world and the freedom in the world, but if you don't act on the freedom because, or you don't see that you have freedoms, then they're not there for you. So hope is a byproduct of knowing you're an agent with choices, And the best way to get more choices is to keep your mind open and keep learning more and more things. And the more things you know, the more choices you have, which gives you more hope, right? The minute you have no more options and you don't think you are an agent, we're in trouble. And so when we're trying to sit and think about managing our our monies or if we're trying to manage our water supply, uh, We've got to know that we're agents. And so think about that. It's one thing in this world to be given all the rights that we have. But with every right is a demanded responsibility. We hear the Supreme Court making decisions all the time that are holding up rights. And with those rights come responsibilities for all of us. Um, And with water usage comes certain responsibilities, especially if you want to be part of the community of water. And this demands management, and this demands some proactivity and some planning and some some, some choices to be made. That was one word he brought up was the hope. Another one he brought up that I think is fascinating is stewardship. Do you feel as a user that you have a stewardship over how much money or how much water you use? We made a mistake once. One of our lines in our house uh, broke, and it was an underground line outside, and it was just spewing water for months. We didn't even know about it. And um, we eventually had the water you know, company come to us and just say, whoa, you've used thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of gallons of water. <sighs> I felt horrible. I felt guilty. Like we felt guilty because we've wasted all of this water. And our kids come home and tell us to turn off our water and don't brush your teeth with the water on. Do you feel like you're a steward of your resources in your city, in your community? Because every one of us, we are. And steward is is a really sacred thing. You have the You have the stewardship of the environment, but you also have the stewardship of your family to teach your family how to appreciate and love and care for the environment. And you don't have to be a you know big tree hugger to go do that, but you can you can be a good steward. So just remember those words, steward, agent, options, right? Pathways and hope. 
It's all good, folks. It's all good. Uh, West will make it through the drought. Let's just let's just plan. Let's get on the same page. Let's be cooperative. Let's be good stewards. That's the Coach's Corner. We're going to take a break. More on the Matt Townsend Show next. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Do you need to improve your relationship with your mother-in-law? Or just your mother, even, for heaven's sakes. Hey, um, we're talking moms today and the impact they have on your marriage. Who better to uh, talk us through that than somebody that's written an article in the Huffington Post, what your mom has to do with your marriage. You know, we just celebrated moms and mother-in-laws, but they, they they can make them or break them as well. They can make marriage... A lot, a lot harder than maybe it needs to be. And uh, simultaneously, if you're a mom out there, you could make it pretty cool by, by strengthening your relationship with your daughter. Uh, today on the show, we are going to be talking with Liz Higgins. And Liz is a marriage and family therapist uh, in Dallas, Texas, and focuses a lot on helping millennial couples uh, ages 13, 18 to, sorry, 18 to 34. And today she's going to be joining us actually right now to talk about about the mother-in-law effect and um, why so many people might have issues with their mother-in-law. Liz Higgins, welcome to the show. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to be a part of the show today. You bet. This is a this is an interesting topic. I see it a lot in my own practice with um, with my couples that they they just it's almost it, I don't see it so much with father-in-laws as much as mother-in-laws. What is it about a mother-in-law? Well, it's so true, right? And I'm comforted hearing you say that you see this a lot, too, because even working with younger couples, I mean, yeah, it's definitely something that it's a prevalent um, factor for many people. And, you know, I think I was listening to one of those commercials running earlier about the, the Mother's Day movie that came out, and it's so true. There's so many different types of parental relationships these days. Some people have two mothers, some people have two fathers, blended families, multiple mother-in-laws. I mean, it goes on and on. Um, But I still think one thing rings true, that mother relationship with a child, even an adult child, is really unique compared to other relationships. Yeah. Um, So, you know, there's no doubt that that role is a significant part of a lot of people's lives. And it it seems like it's it's a weird competition almost for the son or the husband. And it's, it's, um, so a lot of times when I hear of mother-in-law issues, I usually, I don't look to the, the women, I look to the man like, okay. Mm -hmm. So there might not be clear messaging going on from the husband or the son. Yes, I completely agree with you. And, you know, honestly, it comes down to the couple's communication about these relationships. I mean, I think when it comes down to it, um, you know, I do a lot of premarital counseling, and I see pretty clearly that something that's not really discussed well, unless people go into premarital preparation of some sorts, is uh, that whole idea of, okay, what are our relationships with our parents going to look like after we get married? Um because it's got to change. And, you know, many people are really, really close to their moms, um, you know, fathers too, but we're specifically talking about moms today. And uh, we have to kind of understand that relationships are fluid. You know, they change over time. It's not just black and white. So a lot of couples don't explore their own expectations about how the relationship with mom maybe needs to change or 
or anything. So it's a lot of unknown. Mm. What are some of the big uh, problems that you do see? What are the what you know, and the errors that maybe are pretty obvious? What what do you see out there? Yeah, that's a good question. And some are obvious, and some are not so obvious. I, I call some of them just growing pains of marriage, basically. But I think some of the most significant issues I see are basically about lack of boundaries. Um, a lot of times, you know, couples will have that controlling and intrusive mother-in-law or mother. Um, and people on, on either end, they don't know where the boundaries lie. You know, what's okay? What's not okay? Okay. And how, how do we deal with this if it's not okay that mom is kind of trying to run our show and tell us how to do things and live our life? Um, a lot of things I'll hear sometimes too, just regarding moms and mother-in-laws. Um, it's kind of a passive aggressive tone about different things, you know, well, that's not how we did it in our family, or that's not how we want to see you doing things. Um, and that can be really hard for young couples, old couples, really any kind of couple. Mm. Um, yeah. And you know, the flip side of that too, is I think there's a lot of people out there that want to please their parents. So, um, you know, the adult kids become people pleasers to their mom and kind of put the mom's wishes before their own spouses. And that can cause a lot of different issues for the couple. Oh yeah. Cause you do, you, um, I, oh, I, I just brought up 20 stories. In in right. my in my mind, I sit there and I and I wonder if this is a millennial problem. Like, is is this new to this kind of uh, millennial generation where where the parents maybe where we over coddled the the kids anyway, and so yeah. it's harder for the parent. They've always <laughs> been doing everything for the child, so why not lead their marriage for them? Oh gosh, right. And I have a million thoughts on that too. I mean, no doubt that this is the experience for a lot of millennials today that that con that idea of being coddled but i think millennials also are really generalized a lot in in that sense of the word right. so you know i've worked with so many millennial aged people that have not had that experience you know they haven't been coddled they they want to have you know their their own life build their own future and and really have been on their own for a long time so that's not always the case um, you know, the term helicopter parent has been around for a while, so I wouldn't say it's completely unique to this generation, but it's definitely a factor for many. I mean, obviously, the studies show millennials stick around the house um, a lot longer than maybe past generations. But I think with all that, we have to consider the economic factors of this generation and what, what we've faced. You know, many people have had to deal with those repercussions of the economy over the past 10 years. And that's really, really changed the ability for people to go out and make their own life. Um, so, yeah, I think it could be a factor, but if it is, it needs to be addressed. Yeah, right. And um, talk about the uh, kind of the gender side of this. Is it Mm -hmm. Why why aren't dads kind of more perceived as overly intrusive? And what do you think? Why And, and and why are moms more at odds with the daughter-in-law? If sure. that's, I guess, if that's the case. Well, yeah, and I don't know if that's maybe the only kind of case I've seen because, again, it's kind of unique to each couple, each family dynamic. I mean, all these issues, again, are kind of fluid just depending on the people and, and their situation. But, 
you know, what I've seen in my experience with couples is while there are differences on paper regarding some of the issues that occur more with males or females, all of the issues typically come down to the growing pain stuff, boundary issues, kind of like I mentioned before. Um, You know, when we're talking about men, kind of like you said earlier, a lot of it kind of has to do with maybe the female partner's closeness to their mom, which could seem kind of intimidating or like a threat to the couple relationship. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, where do I fit into this whole thing? You know, when you're running off and talking to your mom about all our stuff, where does that put me? So that can kind of be like a competition type thing. And then for women, you know, I'm, I'm kind of just thinking of a male-female di- dynamic here, which we know there's so many different dynamics out there. But for women that have really close relationships, um, or I'm sorry, for, for women whose partners have really close relationships with their mom, you know, they want to make sure they're number one to their partner and that they aren't being judged or compared to the mother-in-law. Mm. So especially, you know, in families with strong cultural influences, there will be that um, kind of thought process of comparing myself to mother-in-law. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, that's an interesting point, too, just culturally. I mean, some cultures hang on to family and some cultures kind of move on from family, right? Absolutely, yes. And, you know, for the strong cultural families, there's tons of things that go into that that, you know, a person could compare themselves endlessly cooking, how they keep the house, how they, um, you know, do the laundry or just different things. And that's, that's hard in a world today where most relationships, both partners are working full-time jobs. Mm. And, and (laughs) the sad thing about this is if you were never near your family, this would be fine. You could just sort it out. Right. But it's every holiday. It's every, and then if it is about like cooking, it's every holiday and they're like, oh, you put marshmallows oh, yeah. on the yams? Yeah, we don't do that. We don't do that. And then it's, right. and then there's this in this sense of inferiority and a competition going on just about mm-hmm. a meal. Yeah. Oh, right. Brother. And that's why I tell couples, you know, as long as you two begin having really open communication about your own, you know, roles, your own expectations for the two of you, then you can step into those situations and you can say things like, okay, I know my mom's probably going to pick on you about this or this. We need to not let that get to us. It's all about having those boundaries, even mm. if they aren't spoken to mother-in-laws or mom. Um, when the couple is on the same page about things, you can get through anything. Yeah. In fact, let's do this. Let's take a break, Liz. I want to come back and start getting into those solutions. So how do we sure. talk about these things? And then how do we set boundaries? I love the idea that as long as we're together on this the same page of boundaries. I don't always have to convey them to my mom. We just or your in laws. You just have to, you have to talk. You just have to be on the same right. page with your, with your spouse. We'll take a break. Continue this discussion, folks. Doing what we can to help you uh, improve your relationship and and allow your relationship to evolve with your mother in law. This is the Matt Townsend Show. More with Liz Higgins when we come back. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, if you've needed a little boost in the uh, in-law relationship area to improve your relationship with your your in-laws or even just your mother-in-law, 
now's the moment, folks. We've got Liz Higgins joining us. She is um, a, uh, a licensed marriage and family therapist associate, and she is also um, the author of a Huffington Post article that we've been discussing, What Your Mom Has to Do With Your Marriage. And she's been talking about the fact that you know, it can be good. It could be parents can be helpful. They also can create some problems. And um, we need some boundaries. We've got to watch out for the passive aggressive tones. We've got to watch out for the reality that, you know, times change. The last 10 years, the economic uh, strength of the country has had collapsed and people needed more support. And that might have actually allowed fewer boundaries and all of a sudden, you're living in the basement with your in-laws. Wah! Crazy time. But it's not hopeless. So uh, we're going to invite Liz Higgins back to talk to us now about uh, open communication and some of the things we can be doing and to, to mitigate and to manage these relationships. Liz, thanks again for being with us. Sure. Thanks so much. And you have a wonderful um, website that I was just uh, visiting and looking at. Um, yeah. And talk to me, Liz. So, by the way, the name of the website is LizHigginsMFT.com, LizHigginsMFT.com. But what are some of the solutions? What can we do as uh, just, you know, husband, wife? And usually it seems like it's kind of in the earlier stages of the marriage where we're forging and and – and I guess uh, remolding this relationship with our in-laws. Mm-hmm. What are the What are some well, of the rules and tools? Definitely, yeah, and hopefully it's happening at the beginning. But if it happens later on in life, that's fine too. You yeah. know, I love talking about the solution because there always is a solution. Um, I think it's hard to say what should happen in every single situation, but you know, one thing is certain to me, um, and this is based on research and what makes marriages last is. The marriage has to come first, so above your parents, above your siblings, above your children. And this is a really hard pill for people to swallow sometimes, especially with that kid factor, but it's true. Um, You know, the most successful relationships are the ones where each person feels respected, valued by their partner, and just the priority of their partner's world. So this doesn't mean that, you know, the relationship with mom becomes surface level or you can't be close anymore, but... The relationship needs to become different. You know, I write in my blog, it's learning to love them in a different way. Hmm. So um, before you ever begin to address boundaries, it's kind of walking into this whole scenario with that kind of mindset. You know, we're doing this because we've come together. Um, We've got married. We love each other. And that's why this is important because setting boundaries is hard to do. And a lot of emotion kind of goes with it. You know, it can feel harsh when you say, no, mom, I'm not going to do this, or, you know, no, we're not coming over for this event. We're going to do our own thing this year. Um, it can feel kind of rude, but it's, you got to do what you got to do to protect your relationship first. Yeah. And and I guess, I mean, that, that idea, that mentality of uh, marriage first, mm-hmm. it, I mean, it's, it seems like a no brainer, but it, it'll impact the kids' lives. If it's not, it'll impact everything. And it's, Jobs will take advantage of it. You know, Netflix is going to want your attention more than your marriage uh, and as well as your Mm in-laws. So, again, I guess talking about that, making that the goal, right, the rule, um, the standard is is important. What uh, how do we what do we do if our if we're talking with our partner and they seem to be easily offended or needing to defend their their mother in a way that that almost is like it's already turning it into a competition. 
Right, sure. That's a good question, you know, because anytime somebody is becoming defensive towards you, it's because they are protecting something. So they're feeling some kind of threat, whether it's emotionally or otherwise. And it's important to kind of stop yourself and and say, okay, what's going on with this person? What's going on with my partner that they're kind of putting the guns up to me because obviously I'm, I'm triggering something or something's getting stirred up. So it's kind of, you know, turning to that turning towards that kind of situation with openness and, and a goal to understand what's going on. What, what is so important? I mean, maybe it's a tradition, maybe it's something that they've, I don't know, some close thing they've got with their parent that they don't want to let go of. And perhaps it's something you can discuss, Hmm. but it's kind of learning to understand your partner's needs, what's going on with them. Because I've worked with a lot of couples where it's really easy for one to kind of cut the tie with their parents and they can just move right along and kind of start their life with their partner. But the other partner really, really has a hard time doing that because maybe they grew up in a really close knit or like enmeshed family system and it's just really hard. And so the other person just doesn't understand why can't you just cut off with these people? You know, Um, it's, it's not always going to be that easy. So it's, Getting curious about your partner, especially when they get defensive, what's going on with them? And, and it's not always, it's not always like if my spouse has a great relationship with their with their mother, it doesn't mean I have to hate that. I mean, that's right. probably healthy and good to a point. I I might want to respect it, um, and maybe then just adjust it now with the new reality that I'm your spouse. Exactly. And that can be really hard for a partner to kind of experience is, you know, a spouse that is really close to their parents when maybe they were not. So with that, I've seen a lot of people even get jealous about it. It's like, wow, you know, I wish I had that. But of course, you wouldn't say that. So it comes out very defensive or passive aggressive or, you know, you start to get angry at your partner. And um I don't know. I tell people when when those negative things start coming out, what are you not talking about? What are you not telling your partner that you need to start exploring with them out loud so that they can understand your world? Hmm. That's great. That, what a great question. And I mean, for yeah. all of us, what what is it you are afraid to say or you don't say yet it keeps coming back and biting you? One of the things you also mentioned in your article is that this doesn't – I mean, this relationship evolves, right? It takes right. time. And what's weird is mm-hmm. you can set all the boundaries you want and then all of a sudden you have a grandchild and a lot of mm-hmm. new boundaries need to be set and new new systems need to be you know created. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm glad you bring that up because you're right. And that's a whole other segment, you know, to talk about for hours and hours, because you're right, you could create these boundaries and have a really good kind of um, separation of your marriage to your parents. But you're right, you know, when you bring children into the page, uh, into the picture, then, you know, here come the animals back in to help (laughs) because it, it just changes the whole dynamic. So yeah, it's a very fluid thing. And you have to just kind of be flexible as you walk through life with your partner. Um, in dealing with that. And I know we talk a lot about the boundary thing. um, And that's, you know, when I talk about boundaries with couples, it's basically learning to identify what is okay and what is not okay for you. And then understanding what is okay and what's not okay for your partner. Because that's, it's a two-way street here, right? And that's part of the communication that needs to go on. I, I see sometimes with my clients that one partner doesn't see the threat of it and one partner sees the threat and mm-hmm. or or sees it as a threat 
Um, mm-hmm. And so I guess this is where you you really need to be able to voice your own concern, but also get out of yourself and truly understand the deeper problem going on with what your partner's thinking. Like, what is it really that's creating this fear in them? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's something maybe a lot of people don't realize um, marriage is about. So, you know, we have a lot more people kind of walking into marriage and calling it quits way, way early. Um, That's a big part of what I see is that that struggle to kind of recognize, oh, wow, so I can state my needs and set my boundaries, but I've also got to respect and protect yours. Mm -hmm. And that's a great way to build the trust, right? If I... If I can understand your needs, you can understand mine, and we could come to some agreement, and then I live up to it. It's not enough. I see all the time where one, like the wife will tell her husband, really, I need you to be loyal to me when we're with your family too. Be loyal to me, my ideas. Listen to me. Validate those. And he's like, for yeah. sure, I will totally be there. And then he still disappears and, and doesn't validate her. And right. you got to deliver. Exactly. You do. And, you know, and it's not about putting your partner in in the path of the flames for you. It's not making them have difficult conversations for you, but it's learning to do it together, learning what that looks like, what that means for each of you. Um, you know, you got to be fair. It's it's not about, okay, you deal with your parents and I'll deal with my parents and that, you know, right. it's it's got to be, it's got to be fair. Hmm. Well, I mean, it's it really is. It's great. It's great advice, and it's it's something we just we learn as we go. It's kind of part of the maturing process. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it comes down to the realization that you cannot control somebody else's behavior. So even if you request changes, or you know, you say, "No, mom, I'm not going to do this," or "No, mom, we're not doing that this time." Um, you have to remember, you can't control how they're going to respond to your boundary, and so. Just remembering that the only person you do have control over is yourself. So sometimes a boundary means removing yourself from a situation that's not conducive to your marriage or healthy for you and just having a way to check in with your partner after that happens so so that you can, like I said, walk into those uncomfortable situations with your in-laws and, and just know that you're on the same page about how you're going to deal with it. Yeah. Great stuff. Great advice. Liz Higgins, uh, appreciate it. And keep writing. Keep up the good work. Yeah, thanks so much. I appreciate it. You bet. We'll talk to you again. Again, Liz Higgins, uh, MFT.com is the website. Um, Liz Higgins, MFT.com. Wonderful uh, insight on uh, how to improve your relationship with your in-laws. We'll take a break. Come back and uh, wrap up the second hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, um, you know, mother-in-laws, blah, 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 blah. You know how they are. No, because they can be fantastic. My mother-in-law was the greatest mother-in-law ever. Gave me great advice. Never got too involved, but did when she needed to and was incredible. And interestingly... Um, if you are a mother-in-law, that's it's a hard road to navigate. I get that. But you kind of need to know how you want to influence your kids. And as a father-in-law, it's hard because do you – what do you do? 
Do we ever just sit down and think, okay, how am I going to handle this? How do I want to be able to talk with my son-in-law? How do I want to be able to influence him? I would suggest to all parents that you you got to be intentional in what you're doing. You can't just wing it in these roles. Even as a father or as a son or a child, we need to get more intentional in what we're trying to achieve in our families because what might seem to be natural might not necessarily work and be good for everybody. Um, And I bring that up because yesterday, Mother's Day, we spent a, a little bit of time at the cemetery looking at the headstone that was just newly put in place of my mother-in-law, who has had passed away a few months ago of Alzheimer's. And an incredible woman who, I remember, I had been dating my wife since I was 17 years old. So I had known my mother-in-law for years, 30-plus years. Incredible woman. And as we sit there and we're standing and looking at her tombstone, um, I just thought, wow, she's gone. She's not with us anymore. And and I, then you appreciate what you do have or what you did have. And so everybody is – in fact, we were even having discussions about maybe we need to buy – you know, maybe it's time that we go purchase where we're going to – be laid to rest. And then we had nieces and nephews that were like, oh, I don't want to die. And then the discussion, well, everyone's going to die. So then how do you want to be remembered? But maybe when it comes down to your family relationships, it's about time that you decide. How do you want to influence your children? How do you want to influence your son-in-law, your daughter-in-law? What, what kind of impact do you want to have on them? Well, I just – I don't want to get too involved, but, you know, I, I can't really influence them, but I can still control my child. What do you want to teach your kids about marriage? And, you know, pushing them – you know, when they come running to you, should you just push them right back into the fray? Maybe. It's, it's hard. I get it. But there's a thing I learned um, many, many moons ago that I, I use anytime I have to deal with conflict. I call it driving within the point of prevention. And it was a lesson I learned in driving school because I, you know, I was known to speed. And while I was in driving school, uh, the teacher taught that you are only as safe as your ability to prevent an accident, Right. You're only as safe as your ability to prevent the accident. And the minute you no longer can prevent an accident from happening, then you are beyond the point of prevention. And this driving instructor was teaching us, always drive within your ability to prevent the accident. Now, the crazy thing about that is there are people that don't drive within the point of prevention. and um, But there are some rules to that. For example, you don't you know, you got to kind of anticipate what's happening. You've got to plan a little bit ahead. You got to keep your distance a little bit. You don't have to like stay back 500 car lengths, but three or four, five, six, ten wouldn't hurt you. You also need to uh, make sure 
to prevent things, that you look both ways, that you understand not just your frame of reference as a mother-in-law or a father-in-law, but understand what they're going through, their frame of reference. When you pull up to an intersection, if you want to prevent an accident, make sure you look both ways, right? Make sure you're understanding not just one side of the story, but both sides. Just because you've always made the roast this way doesn't mean we have to even have a roast or, or that it has to be made this way. Possibly we could have turkey. Ah, turkey's for Thanksgiving. Ham is for Christmas. Ah, brother. Let's try prime rib. Look both ways. Another rule about the point of prevention is we have to be heading in the same direction. Right? So get on the same page with people. If you really aren't going to be able to make it somewhere, don't keep leading them on that you'll be, yeah, we'll be there. We'll be there later. We'll probably be there later. If you're not going to be there, don't go, but tell them. Get on the same page. Be real. Uh, Another rule is um, you have to drive within the conditions you're given, right? You're not allowed to go, uh, you know, 70 miles an hour on a 70 mile an hour posted speed limit freeway if it's snowing and, and, and sleeting and hailing. You might want to slow down. So just because it's posted and we always go 70 doesn't mean you should. If you want to prevent an accident, you might need to adjust, right? You might need to slow down. You might need to anticipate. You might need to understand what's going on. And sometimes you just need to not drive. It's, it's a hard thing, and a lot of times I've noticed just as, a, as a, an adult with children now that are married, sometimes you just have to be the bigger person. You don't have to be offended. You just have to figure out how to be the grown-up. And um, I'm going to bet that needs to be you. Oh, see, it's always me. Right. I know. I know. But it might need to be you if you want to keep people close to you. If you don't want to keep people close to you, just go off. Make it your way. Do whatever you need to do all the time. And then see what happens. And amazingly, when you become a crazy, frantic driver, everyone kind of pulls away from you. And that's what happens in our families. We can't afford it, folks. We got we to gotta love one another, right? We'll take a break. More after the break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. <laughs> 